Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Does this theme music sound familiar? It should. It's pretty popular. If you're not quite placing what it is, this is the theme song written by a guy named Neil Hefty for the feature film and subsequent TV series called The Odd Couple. The Odd Couple was a Broadway play written by Neil Simon. It was uh, turned into a feature film starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau and then subsequently became a very, very popular and successful TV sitcom, which ran from 1970 to 1975, starring a guy named Jack Klugman and another guy named Tony Randall. Tony is the important guy in this story. The concept of The Odd Couple is pretty simple. Neil Simon really came up with just a dynamite situation. It's about two middle-aged, newly divorced men who are forced to share an apartment together in Manhattan due to circumstances beyond their control. What adds a little friction to the formula is one of the guys, a character named Oscar Madison, who is a sports writer, is a complete and unadulterated slob. The other man, the other friend, his name is Felix Unger. He's a commercial photographer. And he is an unbelievable neat freak and a hypochondriac. So the whole point of the odd couple is, can these two guys who are complete polar opposites in the way they live their lives, can they get along sharing an apartment without killing each other? It's pretty funny stuff. Now, in the TV version, Tony Randall played the part of Felix Unger, the neat freak. And I got to tell you, he was brilliant at it. They talk about actors inhabiting a role. Tony Randall totally inhabited the Felix Unger role. The episodes where he goes into his hypochondriac shtick are some of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV. And he's just all around (laughs) a brilliant comic actor. Now, why do I bring up Tony Randall? Because I once had a very interesting lunch meeting with Tony Randall, and I want to tell you all about that. Now, I'm going to tell the Tony Randall story first, in part because the other night I discovered that Hulu is now streaming the entire run of the TV sitcom The Odd Couple. And I watched a couple episodes this week, and they are funny. They have not lost a bit of their a bit of their energy. My wife watched some of it with me, and it brought back fond memories of when she used to watch the show uh, with her mom, which I thought was kind of cool. So we're getting reacquainted with uh, Tony Randall as a comic actor. And I start reminiscing about my first job. I mentioned this in an earlier chapter. My first job when I was writing and producing healthcare training videos for a hospital in southern Wisconsin. It wasn't a very exciting job. As you may guess, making healthcare training videos is a little boring. We did end up with one of our videos being uh, admitted to the Library of Congress's permanent collection, which 
I thought was kind of cool for about five minutes. But yeah, that was my job. I, I, I researched and wrote healthcare training videos. People in the healthcare community have to have constant training and retraining on, on whatever their specialties are. So training videos were a huge, huge market. And this hospital I was working for was making tons and tons of money off these very simple videos. Well, at one point, I was asked to uh, make a video dealing with infection control. And that's just as dull as it sounds. We're talking about a 12 to 15 minute video all about staying clean and washing your hands. It was a very boring script to write. It was shaping up to be a very boring video. So I'm working on this script for this infection control video that's all about washing your hands. And I find the local newspaper, and it has an article about an upcoming uh, foodie event in Milwaukee. And the guest of honor at this event is none other than Tony Randall, Mr. Felix Unger from The Odd Couple in the flesh. He was going to be appearing the following week in Milwaukee as part of this gourmet food um, celebration. So a light bulb went on above my head, and I went to my boss and said, Hey, Mr. Neat Freak himself is appearing in Milwaukee next week at an event. Should we try to get him to narrate our infection control video? Might be kind of funny. Might boost sales. And my boss was kind of like, sure, whatever. I don't think he really imagined I would ever make anything happen. But he gave me the okay. So I got the info on Tony Randall's publicist and called him up. And gave him the pitch, said, we'd, you know, we'd love to, uh, to hire Tony while he's in Milwaukee to narrate a 15-minute uh, training video on how to keep your hands clean. And he said, we can do that. But he said, the problem is Tony's only in Milwaukee for like two days and every minute of his time in Milwaukee is spoken for. He said, there's no way we could fit another event into his packed schedule. Well, I was pretty disappointed by that. But then the publicist said, but there is one thing we could do. He said, if you and your crew could get out here sometime in the next couple of weeks, we could get Tony in a recording studio and we could record the, we could record the narration for your video. He said, we only, we only need three things to make this work. First of all, you'll need to hire a limo for the day. And second of all, you'll have to take Tony to lunch at the Russian Tea Room. And third of all, you'll have to make a $2,000 donation to Tony's Theater Foundation. Tony was trying to put together a repertory company of performers for the Broadway stage. So I went back to my boss and said, okay, we can do this. Here's the deal. You'll have to send me and our director to New York for a couple of days. We have to rent a limo. We have to take Tony to the swankiest <laughs> restaurant, one of the swankiest anyway, restaurants in Manhattan, and we need to pay him $2,000. In addition to all the other stuff, the travel expenses for me and the director, uh, renting the time at a recording studio, et cetera, et cetera. It was stacking up to be a pretty expensive proposition. But to his credit, my boss said, let's do it. We've gone this far. Let's, let's just make it happen. So... A couple of weeks later, uh, the director I worked with and I went to New York. We rented a limo. We booked time at a recording studio. We booked a reservation at the Russian Tea Room. We did everything that uh, Tony's publicist asked us to do. 
And then we find ourselves uh, sitting at the Russian Tea Room, waiting, t- waiting for Tony and his publicist to show up. And we're sitting in this sort of big corner booth, which we ultimately find out is the Woody Allen Mia Farrow booth at the Russian Tea Room, which at the time was pretty cool, but now it's kind of disgusting. Anyway, that's where they sat us. And so after a while, uh, Tony and his uh, publicist show up and have a seat at our table. And this was much, this was a much bigger deal for me than it was for the director I worked with. He didn't really know that much about Tony Randall and didn't really seem to care. But I was pretty excited about it. So you can imagine how disappointed I was when Tony Randall, who sat next to me at the table, just plain ignored me. It turned out the Russian Tea Room is a place where celebrities go to see and be seen. And Tony just immediately had his radar out, scanning the room, looking for anybody interesting, anybody he should know. Well, when I had come into the restaurant about 10 minutes earlier, I also did kind of the same thing. I scanned the restaurant for any any kind of stars or personalities I might recognize. And I was disappointed that I only recognized one person, this kind of this kind of dog-faced character actor named Richard B. Shull. But I thought, well, okay, I've seen my celebrity, you know, and then Tony will be my second celebrity. So Tony's looking around the restaurant, trying to figure out if there's anybody worth talking to. First person he sees is this British uh, interview show host, David Frost. And Tony and David go through this whole big thing where they spread their arms out and hug each other and and they're talking so loud that of course everyone in the restaurant can hear them they're like david david how are you tony tony how are you i love you and they hug for a while and talk real loud for a while and then david frost goes away and tony sits down at our table again well now tony's like really into it but he's still ignoring me and he leans over to his to his uh his publicist and he says he says, hey, do you, see that? do you see that guy back there on the table? He's like about two-thirds of the way down. Do you see that guy? I, 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 I know I should know him. What's his name? And without even looking up to turn around to see who Tony was pointing at, I said, oh, that's Richard Bichel. And Tony did this long take where he slowly turns his head towards me. And he just has this look of utter astonishment. And he says, you're right. That's Richard B. Shull. And from that moment on, Tony talked to me. He treated me like a human being, which was really, really kind of awesome. Well, it got a little weird later when we ordered our lunch. I didn't recognize most of the stuff uh, on the menu. Uh, It was out of my league, food-wise. So I just ordered something that sounded interesting. I I have no recollection of what it was called or why I thought it would be interesting, but I ordered it just so I would have some lunch. And they bring our food out and they put a plate in front of me that has three cakes of fried cream cheese. They're each each of these cakes is about the size of a hockey puck. And they're they're just a little browned on the outside from from being deep fat fried. And I, I cut into one of them and it's just it's a little crunchy on the outside, but on the inside, it's just cream cheese. That's it. And I catch Tony looking at me, and he looks down at my plate, and he looks back up at me, and he just says, Are you really going to eat that? And I said, 
of course I am. You know, of course, I'm not going to admit that I had fucked up so stupidly. So, yeah, so I went ahead and ate my, uh, my deep-fried cream cheese. To this day, I have no idea what it was I was eating, what the hell it was called. I, I just, just now, I checked the Russian Tea Room's menu, and I don't see anything on their menu that says anything about fried cream cheese. So it will forever be a mystery. At any rate, Tony got a little bit of a chuckle out of my stupid ordering, and then he actually asked if he could taste it, which, of course, I was happy to <laughs> happy to oblige. So now I can say I shared, I didn't just have lunch with Tony Randall, I shared my lunch with Tony Randall. So lunch is over. We go out to the gigantic Cadillac stretch limo that we've rented for the day. We drive to the recording studio. Tony's getting a little more talkative. There was one movie in particular I wanted to ask him about. It's, it's a movie I've always had kind of a soft spot for, even though it's, it's, um, it's incredibly racist and incredibly politically incorrect. It's a movie called Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe, in which Tony Randall, who is, who is, <laughs> is a complete wasp, he plays a Chinese, an elderly Chinese man who runs a one-man one circus in this movie. It's a dopey movie. It's really sappy. Tony actually plays all seven faces of Dr. Lowe. So it's kind of a virtuoso performance from him. So I asked him about that. I was also curious because that movie also happens to have been directed by George Pal, an idol of mine who kind of created the modern science fiction movie back in the late 50s with the such such amazing movies as The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine and When Worlds Collide and The Conquest of Space. Uh, George Pell has a really interesting science fiction filmography. So I thought it was cool that I met Tony Randall, a guy who worked with George Pell. So I asked him about George Pell, and Tony just kind of shook his head, and he said, oh, he said, you know how corny that movie is, Dr. Lowe? He said, George Pell was exactly that way. He was just as... He was just as sappy as that movie was. He saw good in everything. He was addicted to happy endings. And he said, if I had taken him aside and said, George, you know, the movie's really cute and everything, but it's getting a little saccharine. Tony's like, he wouldn't have even known what I was talking about because it was just so him. So I thought that was kind of cool. So we get to the recording studio in Manhattan and we finally start talking about the script for my infection control video. And Tony, Tony, with a absolutely straight face, he says, so, you know, why did you want to hire me to, to narrate this video? I, I, I don't get it. He said, well, you know, what, what, what was the connection there? And I just kind of looked at him like, you don't know? <laughs> and I said, well, well, I just thought it would be funny to have this video about hand washing to be narrated by by the guy who played Felix Unger. And Tony's kind of like, "Huh, okay, I see." So he goes into the recording booth and he he pretty quickly lays down a good track that we can use. The guys the guys in a pro. So he comes out of the recording booth and he's holding the script. He's looking down at the script and then he looks up at me and of course he's he's got his reading glasses on. So he's looking up at me over his reading glasses. And he just says, you know, it's not very funny. And I just started laughing so hard. So I was like, no, 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 I, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying my script was funny. I know my script wasn't funny. 
what's funny is having Felix Unger. Oh, never mind. <laughs> there just wasn't any point. It was just it was just a really goofy situation. But then it got fun again because Tony goes, "Okay, guys, how long do you have the limo for?" And we said, "Well, you know, the rest of the day, as long as we need it." And he goes, he gets all excited. And he goes, "Okay." He goes, I have an appointment in about an hour at the Tavern on the Green. I got to be there. Uh, but he said, in the meantime, let's hop in the limo. I'll give you a tour of Manhattan. And the, the director and I just look at each other like, holy shit, that is so cool. So we go down to, you know, we get the, we get the tape from the, the audio technician. All, our, all that business is taken care of. And then we go out to the limo. And, and Tony Randall, for like the next hour, Tells the limo driver where to go, and he gives us this really fun tour of Manhattan. The two highlights that stick out with me the most are uh, we went past the Dakota, the legendary apartment building, the Dakota, right off Central Park. And I think I could be getting this wrong, but I think he may have actually been living at the Dakota at the time. But I could be wrong. Then he had us, he had the limo driver take us to a place in Central Park called Strawberry Fields. This was the uh, the garden that John Lennon's wife, Yoko Ono, had uh, built after John Lennon was assassinated. And we get out of the car, we get out of the limo, we were walking around Strawberry Fields, and Tony's just super excited showing everything off to us because he just loves New York so much. And then he points out Strawberry Fields and he goes, now this is the garden that was built by John Lennon's widow, Yono Oko. And the director and I just kind of looked at each other like, should we tell him he got the name wrong? Nah, we just, we just let it sit there. Well, shortly after that, we dropped Tony off at the Tavern on the Green for his next engagement. And the next day we flew home and that was that. And, uh, it was a really fun adventure. I just loved meeting Tony. He was just a really, really sweet guy. And the video sold pretty well. So that's the end of that story. Now, on to another celebrity lunch date. A few weeks ago, I did a guest spot on a Star Trek podcast and had a lot of fun talking about my work writing for Deep Space Nine, which I'll be going into a lot in coming weeks. But at one point, one of the hosts of the podcast asked, did you get to meet any of the cast members? And I said, oh, no, I never did. I never did. I I got to go on set once or twice, but I never met any of the cast members. And I said it that way because I I was just thinking in terms of the Deep Space Nine cast members. I never met any of the Deep Space Nine cast members. But in another sense, what I said wasn't right, because I actually had met other cast members of other Star Trek series. I mentioned in an earlier episode about meeting George Takei and Walter Koenig, Sulu and Chekhov from Star Trek The Original Series. I neglected to mention meeting Leonard Nimoy once when he was in Milwaukee performing a one-man show about Vincent Van Gogh's brother and met Leonard Nimoy and got his autograph on my program. My friend John got his autograph on a drawing that John had done of Leonard Nimoy. John is an amazing artist and that's got to be his prized position of all time. So there were those meetings, but there was another meeting that I, I forgot to mention. 
It involved a gaming and science fiction convention that took place in 1994. It was called Gen Con, and it was put on by a small Wisconsin company called TSR Hobbies. If you recognize that name, it's because TSR Hobbies was the company that brought Dungeons and Dragons to the world back in the 1970s. Well, they put on an annual gathering called Gen Con. In fact, I just discovered that Gen Con is still going on. There was just a Gen Con last month in in, uh, Indianapolis. So that's cool. So Gen Con was meeting in 1994 at a convention center in downtown Milwaukee. And they had a pretty good list of guests of honor, including Majel Barrett the widow of Gene Roddenberry, the founder and creator of Star Trek. Majel has the honor of having been the one actor to have performed in more Star Trek shows than any other other performer. And I'm not saying sheer number of episodes. I'm saying the different series. She was in the original series, first of all, as number one, Captain Christopher Pike's uh, second-in-command on the Enterprise. She graduated from being number one or was demoted, depending on how you look at it, later in the original series when she played Nurse Christine Chapel. Many people remember her as having uh, an unrequited love for Mr. Spock. When the Star Trek The Next Generation came around in the 80s, Majel Barrett became a part of that cast as well, playing a character called Loxana Troy, who was the mother of... Deanna Troy, one of the series regulars, the crew counselor. Loxana Troy was a very funny character. She was this larger-than-life, like, anti-mame kind of character. And she um, she really, really liked Captain Picard a lot. She was in Star Trek Voyager. She was in Star Trek Enterprise. She was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She was in Star Trek The Animated Series. She's been in several of the Star Trek feature films. Even when she wasn't in any of these things playing an actual person, she was almost always providing the voice of the ubiquitous Starfleet computer on virtually every spaceship in Starfleet. So Majel was a part of Star Trek from beginning to end. So... Majel is a pretty big wheel in the Star Trek world, and she was the guest of honor at Gen Con on what they dubbed Science Fiction Saturday. The other big star was this dude named John Delancey, who Trekkies are familiar with. He played the recurring character of Q, the mischievous, omnipotent superbeing called Q, who just loved to drive Captain Picard crazy. And then he came back later, I believe, in Star Trek Voyager and is still around in one form or another. So those were the two guests of honor. There was also Star Trek author Peter David. There was Star Wars author Timothy Timothy Zahn, Battletech author Michael Stackpole, and last but not least, Star Trek author Gene DeWeese. So that was the list of celebrities appearing at Gen Con. Well, my agent and I got wind of this and contacted the folks at TSR Hobbies, putting the show on, and said, hey, you know, I'm right here. I'm right here in southern Wisconsin. You should put me in the show. I can talk about writing for Star Trek. Well, they loved the idea, but we got into this so late in the game that TSR claimed, well, we can't really pay you. We're over budget on everything, blah, blah, blah. So my agent had this brilliant idea of saying, well, 
Mark will appear for free if you arrange for him to have lunch with Majel Barrett. And believe it or not, they agreed, and Majel Barrett agreed, <laughs> so we had that all lined up. And here, just to give you an idea of how this whole thing came together, here's a, I still have a memo from uh, one of the developers of the Game Fair. She wrote to me, Dear Mark, here's some information on Science Fiction Saturday's programming, August 20th in Milwaukee. I think you'd be wonderful on the Business of Writing Science Fiction panel, as well as the Q&A screening we talked about on the phone earlier. I'd love to hear your other ideas, perhaps a screenwriting how-to. In any event, you and your whole family certainly are invited to be our guests for the day. Meanwhile, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Well, very nice letter. And, and my family did come, and we had a blast that day, and lunch with Majel Barrett was very fun. I wish I could say I remember as many details about that lunch as I do about the lunch with Tony Randall, uh, but I don't. I, I know that I played it safe with Majel and ordered a salad. That's one thing I remember. I do remember her as being a very, a very pleasant, very likable person who was unbelievably grateful and appreciative for all the love uh, of, of the Trekkies at the convention. I mean, she was surrounded by Trekkies constantly, and she was just so gracious and so grateful about her husband's, her late husband's legacy that I, I, I just found her really charming. And at that lunch, I pitched a media project to her involving sort of peripherally involving Star Trek, but taking a broader look at Gene Roddenberry's career. And she loved the pitch. That was kind of the highlight of the lunch. I was able to pitch this idea to her. She was very receptive to it. Uh, we agreed that uh, after the hubbub of the convention that we would all get in touch again and, and sort of start knocking around ideas and seeing how we could make it work. So that was an amazingly exciting development from that lunch. Uh, unfortunately, within a couple of weeks of then, the project kind of, uh, well, it just kind of ground to a halt uh, for reasons beyond our control. What we were told was that one of Majel Barrett's uh, employees, one of the employees of, of the Roddenberry Foundation or, or whatever they called it at the time, one of the employees had been embezzling. Uh, and when that was discovered, Majel just sort of did a huge lockdown. Uh, on all new all new projects and all new all new projects in development, so that kind of killed it for us. But we are actually going back to the Roddenberry <laughs> company now with this old proposal, which is actually still kind of fresh, and we're going to see if we can get some traction out of that. So the whole thing might have a happy ending after all. At any rate, that was my lunch with Majel. The epilogue to that, though, is. They squeezed me into the celebrity panel later on that afternoon at Gen Con with John DeLancey and with Majel Barrett and with all of the other guests of honor, Gene DeWeese, Peter David, Timothy Zahn. They were all going to be on this panel. And at the last minute, the organizer said, Mark, we would like you to be on the panel too. I guess enough people had come to my earlier session on the business of writing science fiction that they thought it would be fun to put me on the panel too. So I get up on stage, um, last minute edition, and they seat me right next to John DeLancey. Again, the actor who plays the omnipotent mischievous super being named Q, who lived to drive Jean-Luc Picard insane. So we're doing this uh, celebrity Q&A, and, and of course the hall is just packed. There's, there isn't an empty seat in the hall. And all these fans are getting up and they're asking really good questions and getting really good answers from the panelists. And, 
And then I get a question, and I don't remember what the question was, but I remember that it was, you know, it was a fairly serious, like, you know, where do you get your ideas from? Or, you know, what's it like working with the producers? And I started to answer the question in a serious manner because I'm, you know, very respectful and, you know, I want to give this person a good answer. And I haven't gotten a half a dozen words out of my mouth. And John Delancey leans over in front of me and makes some stupid wisecrack about what I was saying. And the crowd just roars with laughter. And he leans back in his seat and he just sort of gives me this sly little smile. And I was like... What the fuck? You, you don't get to do that. Well, I was steaming over this, and then somebody else asked me a question. And once again, I started to answer it. And once again, Delancey leans over in front of me and cuts me off with some stupid, asinine joke about what I'm saying. And once again, the crowd just roars with laughter. Once again, he gives me that little grin. And once again, I'm just sitting there fuming. It's like, wait a minute. this person asked me a good question. I want to give him a good answer and you're killing it. You're ruining it. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, oh, this is what the fans came for. They want to see John Delancey being John Delancey. They They don't give a shit about what I'm answering to their questions. They want to see John Delancey be a cut up. And that's exactly what he's given them. And the crowd is loving it. So after that, when I was asked a question, I would just basically hand it over to John Delancey and let him let him do the talking. And that that's kind of how the whole thing ended up. But we didn't have lunch together. So that catches you up on my celebrity lunches. Thanks for listening. This has been Far Fetched. I hope you'll come back again for the next episode.